week, and one of you sent it to me, about the loneliness epidemic. Maybe you've heard that phrase. This one was entitled, What You Need to Know About the Loneliness Epidemic. And there's some statistics in here that say that over the 50 years here in our country, rates of depression and isolation and anxiety have doubled in just 50 years. Isolationism leads to depression. Several of you sent me an article this week that was entitled, The Top 10 Post-Christian Cities in America. And it was a survey of cities where people described whether they go to church anymore, whether they have faith anymore. And probably to no one's surprise, seven out of the 10 top post-Christian cities are right here in this region where we live. Boston to New York, upstate New York, it's a post-Christian region. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to start connecting the dots between these two articles, the loneliness epidemic and the collapse of local communities called the church. People are no longer belonging to groups like we are in here this morning. They're no longer belonging to communities of faith, and they're lonely. And in our scripture reading for today, we have this ancient paragraph. It's a small paragraph with a lot packed into it that describes what true Christian community offers. And it offers the solution to what we're now calling the loneliness epidemic and all of the social ills that come with it. The local church provides the solution to that problem, not just because it's a nice gathering, but because of who is at the center of that gathering namely Jesus Christ. So what we're doing here this morning and this paragraph that we're studying, it's not just another text we can kind of maybe think is a nice sounding thing to have. It's actually what our hearts long for most desperately. So I want us to read it together today. And if you're new to Stanwich Church this morning, if you're visiting with us, I want you to get a peek into what's important to us here at this church. The very same things that were important to the earliest church, this story took place in the first generation. People who were eyewitnesses to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. I'm excited because when I read through this paragraph, I realize so many of the things that marked their community also mark ours. So let's look at it together today and find out what the true Christian church can look like, beginning with verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves, these early Christians, they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread in the prayers. It's important to realize that everything else in the paragraph flows from this first sentence that the earliest Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? What were the apostles talking about? What were they teaching these gatherings of Christ followers there in the first century? Very simply, they were proclaiming the gospel. That's what the apostles' teaching was. It went something like this. There was this man named Jesus who walked around and taught and healed and also mentioned that he was the Son of God. 
the Romans were so offended by this, and so were the Jewish leaders, that they hung him on a cross and he died. And people thought that the Jesus movement had died with him. But three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was, the Son of God. And proving that when he went to the cross in that horrible death, he was paying the price for all of our sins. And then 40 days later, he rose from our sight. He ascended and he retook his seat at the right hand of the Father where he is king of all creation. And anybody who believes in that will not die but will have everlasting life. That's what the apostles' teaching was, basically. And it says that the early Christians devoted themselves to that, to the gospel, to the word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, in other words, gathering around that word, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What is the breaking of the bread? We do it every Sunday here when we come to this table. We lift up that bread and we remember what Jesus said, this is my body given for you. It too is a depiction of the gospel. Now what I love about this is that it says the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to prayers. In other words, to word and sacrament. I love the fact that when we gather in this room every single Sunday, our focal point where our eyes are drawn when we sit in these pews is to the word and to sacrament. You know what's written in this book, don't you? The apostles' teaching. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching when we gather in this room and we hear sermons like this and to the breaking of the bread where we remember week after week that we come to God's table of unmerited grace. It's the gospel. We're still doing the very same thing these earliest Christians did. Also to the fellowship of gathering together. And it says also they devoted themselves to the prayers. I was thinking in my mind this past week how many ways we pray as a church. We have the pastoral prayer here in the middle of worship. We have elder healing prayer the first Sunday of the month. We have living free prayer, which is inner healing and deliverance. We have a prayer time before every worship service. There's a 6 a.m. prayer gathering in Stamford. We have all the prayers that you do in your homes with devotions in the morning or the evening or at lunch. Not to mention all the Bible studies we do begin in prayer. You see how we, just like the earliest Christians, are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayers. This is pretty cool. This is a good affirmation to me. I could have done an assessment this week and realized we're not doing one of these main things. But we are. And what happens to a community that devotes themselves to these things? Well, let's read about it in the very next verse, verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I love that phrase, awe came upon every soul. What began to happen was awesome. Wonders, signs, blessings. I got to experience an awesome wonder 
just last week that's very much in line with this New Testament church. We had wrapped up our worship service last evening in Stamford in the boxing gym there where we worship. And I was talking with a young man after the service while the chairs were all being put away. And there was a more elderly man I could see out of my peripheral standing waiting to talk to me. He was leaning on, a, on a, like a walking cane. And I didn't think I had seen him before. He was with a family that I know from our Stanford worship service. So I wrapped up my conversation with the young man and I turned to this man leaning on his cane. And I said, hey, how's it going? And, and he told me his name. His name was Al. And he said, I'm 84 years old. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I was really wounded by some church leaders when I was young, but I kept going, but I never received Christ until four days ago when I had this vision of a flame coming from heaven right down into my soul. And he said, I want to tell you this because you just preached about Pentecost. Remember the flames of fire last week? And he said, I saw that in my own life, and it entered into me, and, and I have Christ living in me now, he said. And he said, I think the spark to that came eight months ago, the last time I was here worshiping with my family. Something started back then, right here in this sanctuary. And now I believe in Christ. And I said, Al, that's amazing. <laughs> this was the coolest way to end my Sunday last Sunday. So I said, can we just pray right now that God would seal what he has done in your heart? And so we prayed, and I thanked God for this 84 years old man in earthly terms, but four-day new, four new infant in the kingdom, a brand new life right here birthed through Stanwich Church. Isn't that awesome? Awe came upon every soul. And it can happen in individual lives like it did with Al, like I just explained. But it also is intended, as we see here in this paragraph, for whole communities. It's not just an individualistic story where person by person by person gets saved, but it's a communal thing what happens here at church. Let's pick up the story in verse 44 where we left off. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Do you see the spontaneous generosity of this communal living that the early church was living in? They were living in such harmony in community and such generosity that when anyone noticed anyone else in need, they said, what do I need to do to make sure your needs are met? Do I need to sell one of my possessions? Fine, I'll sell it. I'll give to you what you need. Can you imagine living in a community like that? where every need is met by the supply within the community. Now, there has been so many theology books written on this verse. This one little paragraph has volumes of, this is what they call ecclesiology in seminary, the study of the church. 
And I've heard a lot of people actually with some confused or even cynical views of this distribution of goods in the church. Maybe you've heard it in Bible studies. So what this is saying is uh, socialism, huh? (laughs) You ever heard that at a Bible study about Acts chapter 2? Well, no, not exactly. What this is is spontaneous generosity of the people of God. What would cause people to distribute their material goods to those in need? Well, what did they begin with? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember, that was the first phrase. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching was that God was so generous with us. He did not spare his own life, but gave it as a sacrifice, as a ransom, so that we might be set free from our sins. They were within the first generation of people who had witnessed the profound generosity of God in Jesus Christ. And in view of that generosity, in view of what happened on the cross, the poured out love and the poured out life of Jesus Christ for sinners like us, they thought, what God has done for me, I now want to freely give to others. How could I hold back anything that I have if God did not hold back for me. How many of us have been asked to give our very lives for somebody else? Yet that is what God did for us. That's what the apostles' teaching was. It was this community of people in view of the generosity of God, therefore being inspired and spontaneously becoming generous with one another. I see this I mentioned it in the stewardship moment, the outpouring of generosity right here in this room. Over the last few weeks, it's been awesome just to watch generosity pour into the church budget. I was curious, I asked Sheila, our executive director, I said, hey, how many weeks has it been that it has taken us as a church to give the last $1 million? So she went and looked at her spreadsheets or whatever she does, and she... Clearly, I like to delegate that role to her because I don't know where to look. And she said, since January 1st, this is so cool to me. Just look around this room. This group, us, right here, this group, since January 1st, have given collectively a million dollars to the church budget. That is amazing. I think the reason for the amazing generosity of this church is because we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to the prayers, to what God has done for us. And it's not just the church budget. So many other ways. Come back to Stanford with me for a moment. A few weeks ago, one of our members, Paul Barker, who loves to go to the Stanford train station, and he just ministers to the people who sleep there, the homeless people who sleep at the Stanford train station. Well, over the last few months, Paul invites some of those men and women to come worship with us. So we've had this small collection of homeless people who come worship with us in Stanford. It's pretty cool to look around the room and see hedge fund managers and homeless people all worshiping God together. One guy in particular, his name is Bob, he usually sleeps at the Stanford train station He's kind of just made his way into all our hearts. He's a delightful guy, has this great big smile, and is just loves having conversation. 
Well, some of the folks in the Stanford worship service have just been kind of loving on Bob. They realized he needed some new shirts and clothes, so they gathered together some resources and got him that. And on and on, they've been getting him some more food, and people are trying to network with him to get some employment. And I just heard this week that some folks from our church are working on getting him permanent housing. I didn't know any of that, actually, until Thursday. It was happening without my micromanaging it. That's just the spontaneous generosity. Why are you laughing so hard? Is, is, my, is my reputation spreading in the community? Don't ask my wife or the staff here about my micromanaging tendencies. I didn't do any of it. It was spontaneous generosity, just like was happening right here in Acts chapter 2. A homeless guy from the train station becoming part of our fellowship. If you came to worship last Sunday night there in Stanford, he was the guy standing at the door greeting, handing out the bulletins. Fully a member of our community. And he has some need, and so some folks from our church started supplying. We are still a true church like they had in Acts chapter 2. I'm really excited about, about that. Now there's one more phrase. Maybe you noticed I left... The last phrase for us to look at, the the last half of verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, this could have said anything, right? It could have said they added to their number those who were being saved. But look who was doing the number multiplication. This is a good word for us, I think. There's a lot of talk, there's a lot of anxiety, and especially American churches nowadays. How do we increase our numbers? How do we grow our numbers? And I look at this and I say, that's actually not our job to do. Our job is to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to fellowship and the prayers, to spontaneously give to one another as generously as God has given to us. That, if we start doing that more and more, we will become a more attractive community to those who need it most. But importantly, people like Al, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, who received Christ last week, it's God's work. God does the saving, not us. The phrase could have ended, and day by day their clever marketing campaign added to their numbers. Now, we do need clever marketing campaigns. I'm not going to deny that, but it's God who saves. It's God who will grow our church. It's God who will bring people into his kingdom, and we just get to be participants in that when we devote ourselves, as we do, to the gospel, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which we're going to do in just a moment, and to being a people who pray. Who wants to belong to a community like this? I know I do. Amen.